Venezuela podcast, the only English language podcast focused on all things Venezuela. Each episode, your host, Rafael, provides the latest updates on one of the greatest ongoing humanitarian crises in the world, with guest features from journalists, subject matter experts, and activists to give you insight into what's really happening in Venezuela. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at State of Venezuela. And now, your host. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and in this episode, we're going to be picking up on the theme of our last episode, which covered the relationship between Russia and Venezuela. Today's date of recording marks one month since Vladimir Putin launched what he has described as a special military operation in Ukraine, an unprovoked full-scale invasion that has led to a generational seismic shift in the world of geopolitics. The war in Ukraine rages on, and we continue to stand with the brave people of Ukraine as they heroically fend off Russia's invasion with fierce resistance. All of this has led to several major developments that were so sudden that I wasn't even able to predict them at all in our previous episode. Just one day after releasing our previous episode on Russian-Venezuelan relations, comes an unexpected visit to Caracas by the highest level delegation of American officials in over five years to meet with officials from the Maduro regime and Nicolas Maduro himself after his vocal support for Russia following its invasion of Ukraine that we covered extensively in our last episode. Why the sudden visit? Well, according to the White House, in order to secure the release of Americans that are currently detained in Venezuela, but also verbatim to discuss energy security. The name of the game is reportedly to boost oil production in Venezuela and help make up for the shortfall in supplies in exchange for the lifting of sanctions. So what does this sudden overture to Venezuela mean for the future of the Venezuelan opposition and for the movement for the restoration of democracy in Venezuela? Even as Venezuela continues to ramp up its own fight against dissidents from the now defunct FARC along the Colombia-Venezuela border using armaments supplied by Russia itself. Joining us from Bogota is a friend of the show and previous guest, Joseph Umire, who serves as the executive director for the Center for a Secure Free Society, a national security think tank that analyzes trans-regional threat networks in the pursuit of advancing freedom and security in the Western Hemisphere. He's also the host of Border Wars, a new podcast and video series that showcases what's happening on the borders of different regions throughout the hemisphere, including and especially between Colombia and Venezuela. As I mentioned, he joins us now from Bogota. So welcome back, Joseph. Great to have you again on the podcast. Thanks, Rafael. Great to be here. So first and foremost, Joseph, congratulations on the new Border Wars podcast. I got to say, folks, if you want to check out what we talk about here in this podcast and really see it vivified for both your eyes and your ears, you got to check it out. It's available on YouTube. I'm going to be posted, have it posted on our description links. No, I appreciate that, Raphael. Um, kind of walking into your world a bit with the podcast. And, uh, you know, I could definitely say that producing a podcast is tougher than it looks. It, it is a lot more uh, things involved. But I think the idea of the Border Wars, both the podcast and the video series, the podcast available on all major platforms, Spotify, Apple, Google, but there's also a video of the podcast on YouTube. 
Uh, and then we have a video series called Border Wars as well, which is basically a combination of a video blog and uh, a sort of mini documentary series or a docu-series where basically you can come along with me. I do a lot of field research. For those that know me over the years, I'm characterized by doing field research all throughout the world, particularly in Latin America, and by visiting hotspots and learning about the different national security challenges that we have in the region. And in the past, obviously, I would come back and write a report or give a briefing, and that would be the product of, of the research. But now with you know all the technology that we have, uh, we're filming some of it. So this is what the Border Wars video series is. And the first episode that came out, I believe, in January is about what you said. It's about the, the border of Venezuela and Colombia and a specific uh, border region, which I call the most dangerous border region in the Western Hemisphere, which is Arauca not just a hotspot, it's literally an armed conflict among illicit actors that are taking place in the department, but also along the city of Arauca, which is right there on the border and on the poorest state, which is on the Venezuela side. So I went down there. You could watch a little bit of what, what I learned as I, as I was in the, the border between Colombia and Venezuela. And what was interesting is one of the things that I picked up on, and we, this was obviously not time for anything. We don't project that far to see what global events are going to be taking place. But when I was down there, I was down there actually in August, September of last year, and it was very evident to me the increased presence of Russia, uh, both on the border with Venezuela and Colombia, but also inside Colombia itself. We know about the Russia presence in Venezuela, but the Russian presence in Colombia had intensified in 2020 and 2021 uh, as well. And this was evident in the border because I'll give you a quick story, uh, uh, Rafael, and I've given the story a few times to people that have interviewed me. But, uh, you know, so we're on Rio Arauca, which is the river that separates Venezuela from Colombia. And as we're patrolling the river, I was with the Colombian Marines. Uh, I have my cell phone on me. And as you know, and I'm sure some of your listeners know, uh, Venezuela and Colombia have a different time zone for whatever reason. But it's about a half an hour difference. And so I noticed that my clock on my cell phone changed uh, time, changed uh, when a half an hour ahead, I think, or behind. I can't remember. But it changed its, its time zone. And then I looked into the diagnostics of the phone and I realized that I was no longer under a Colombian telecommunication system. And I didn't cross over into Venezuela. I'm on the river on the Colombian side. The Colombians are very careful not to go into the Venezuelan side of the river. But nonetheless, we, we, we were, uh, even though we weren't in Venezuela, we were close enough that the Venezuelan telecommunication system had sucked up my phone. And then when we did the diagnostics on like Wi-Fi signals and, and different kind of uh, broadband signals that, that were existing in that region, they were controlled by Russian satellites. And this was very telling to me because this was basically defining the problem that we have on the Colombian side of the border, which is uh, whether it's uh, normal people with their cell phones or whether it's military with encrypted communications, the Russians are helping the Maduro regime listen and spy on all that communication. And I saw that firsthand when I was down there in, uh, in on the border with Colombia, Venezuela. And I think that this is kind of telling of what's going on with Russia's activities worldwide. And this is obviously most intensified after they've invaded Ukraine. That's insane. So you're saying that, I, I need to make sure that I heard that correctly. So you're saying that based on the synchronization of, of, your, of your watch. My cell phone. Your, your cell phone, right, right. So that's a direct consequence of monitoring that's being done, not by Venezuela, not by Colombia along that border, but by Russia. Yes, because there, there's, there's a satellite spectrum, you know, there's a cell towers, right? And there's a satellite spectrum that controls your cell signal, and that's controlled by satellites. 
The Russians have a satellite system, a GPS system. It's called GLONASS. They actually have a station out in Nicaragua, uh, but it's connected to uh, outposts in Venezuela. And so this, it's kind of well known inside Venezuela. You can connect into the Russian GPS system. But what was interesting to me was beyond that, you know, because I mean, I, I, whatever, my phone gets sucked up. Doesn't matter. It's a civilian phone. But they had these mobile radar systems. They're actually called the P-18 mobile radar systems. And if you combine those with drone technology, specifically the Orlan 10 reconnaissance drones, and you know where you know the military outposts or the military bases are of Colombia, you can use that to either jam or to listen into encrypted communications. Now, that's much more advanced than what you would do for you know just listening to a civilian cell phone. Uh, but my point to all that is to say, that you know, we we look we thinking about the border. We're on the Colombian side of the border. We're thinking we're safe, and in reality, you're not that safe, right? I mean, you're at least maybe might, maybe you might be safe from uh, the Maduro regime kidnapping you or something like that. You still got to be worried about the illicit actors, the LN and the FARC. But you, the Russians have provided and augmented uh, the capabilities of the Maduro regime to do things that they would have never been able to do before. I mean, when it comes to this type of uh, military intelligence technology. Uh, Venezuela was no match for Colombia and, and really should not be no match for Colombia because Colombia has one of the most professional military services in Latin America. But because of the Russian military technological support, uh, they're at least able to, to, to equalize that, at least in the terms of intelligence and espionage. And it's something that the Colombian military is very well aware of and uh, they're continually complaining about. Now, when you were there, there's a a really really cool reel that uh, I and again I have to emphasize for people in the audience, you got to check this out. And I would actually recommend that you follow uh, Joseph Omira on Instagram for those of you who are active on there. The graphics, the editing is just unbelievably slick. It, it's it's very visually appealing. And in one of the clips that you have on there, you um, you passed by one of the parts of the river and you see the flag of the FARC. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, exactly. So that we kind of opened the, the video with this because it was interesting to me. We're uh, patrolling the river. I'm with the Colombian Marines, Battalion 50. It's 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 one of the, the, the stronger battalions that's, in, it's pretty much in a hot zone. It's in an armed conflict because there's FARC in ELN and Tren de Aragua and all these illicit actors fighting each other over the cross-border illicit trade. And we're patrolling it, so we're being very careful, right? There's and the video you see me on on the boat, but in reality there was six security vessels as well. I mean, they had you could see them, some of them in the beginning of the video, and I mean they had heavy small arms, Mark 19s, 50 caliber weapons, and, and things like that. So if something happened, we I, mean, I assume we would have been okay. But what I was noticing is as we were moving along the river, it seemed like checkpoints. I don't know if they were exactly checkpoints, but it seemed like every in every so interval, maybe of 50 meters or 50 yards or so. Uh, there would be a FARC flag. Wow. And I'm wondering myself, is like, why are these flags just hanging here? And why aren't you guys taking them down? And then they respond to me and they say, well, that it's, they're on the Venezuelan side of the river. They're not on the Colombian side. And that was very telling to me because what it showed me was you know, the Colombians are very careful not to uh, impede on the territorial sovereignty of Venezuela. Like they could easily, just, and it's really like on the line. So they could easily just go over there and, shoot that or, or cut that flag down, uh, but they don't want a, any conflict. They're not looking for a conflict with Venezuela. Can't say the same for the other side. The Venezuelans are constantly breaching the territorial sovereignty of Colombia. And I was mentioning the drones and, and all that stuff, but it's not just that. I mean, it's, it's the illicit actors. It's just all kinds of different shenanigans that they're pulling along the border. But going back to the flag, I mean, it, it was pretty telling to me as well. And I was there with a, uh, an advisor that we have here in Colombia as a Colombian colonel. 
And what he was telling me was essentially the FARC is essentially claiming their territory in, in spite of the, the conflict that they're having with other illicit actors, namely the ELN. So you got to remember Arauca is historically an ELN territorial hotbed. But over the turn, pretty much since uh, Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela, the FARC started introducing themselves into that uh, territory because they were looking to move uh, or expand, I should say, the, the, the drug trade into there. Because historically, the ELN made its money off of illicit oil and gas operations. They would steal gas or steal oil and, and sell it on the black market, and that was their main moneymaker. But the FARC, which was more to the cocaine business, uh, they started to move in there. And, and for a while, they didn't clash. They didn't clash. I mean, it was pretty much, you know, one's doing their illicit work, the other one's doing their illicit work, and they just didn't have a need to, to confront each other. But this all changed after March 19th of last year of 2021, when the Maduro regime clashed with the FARC, and then that pretty much sparked an illicit conflict, which most people and most analysts kind of concluded that this is just narco wars, right? These are just mafias that are fighting over the drug trade. But what I saw there was a little bit different. It was, yes, that's going on. There's, you know, cartels and mafias fighting over illicit trade. But what I saw was actually how the Maduro regime and Russia was capitalizing on that conflict to be able to drive a false narrative. So what is that false narrative? That false narrative is A, that Duque is the narco state and that Colombia is the one that's not doing enough to deal with drug traffickers. And Venezuela, the Maduro regime, is fighting drug trafficking. They're the ones that are actually trying to stop drugs from flowing, which we know is not only ironic, it's hilarious because we, we know the Maduro regime is one of the biggest cartels in the Western Hemisphere, if not the world. Uh, and so, but it's this false narrative that they're capitalizing on. It was, and it was very telling to me, and we showed this in the video, when the Russian spokeswoman from the foreign ministry, the same spokeswoman that's talking all about the Ukraine war right now, she spoke back then in March of 2021 about how she thinks that President Duque and Nicolas Maduro should sit down, their counterparts should sit down and resolve the border conflict so that they could create a peace zone along the border. Now, that's a bunch of BS because what they're doing, what Russia was doing with that communique was they're putting a false moral equivalency between a democratically elected government, which is the government of President Ivan Duque, regardless of what you think of President Duque, he was elected democratically, and a dictatorship. A, a regime that was never elected or just had false elections, but they're putting them on the same uh, table and they're putting in the same equivalency because that's part of that same false narrative that Russia and Maduro and others are propagating worldwide. That is a perfect example, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. If you listen to the last podcast episode that I did with Dr. Evan Ellis, and he spoke, he spoke in detail extensively, did a really good job of it explaining the old Soviet doctrine of reflexive control. And the example you just gave, Joseph, is a perfect example of that, where you put these two countries and somehow make the suggestion that they're somehow on morally equal footing when nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, no, that's absolutely the Russians are very good at this. Uh, the Chinese are good at this now. The Iranians are good at this. This has become part of what uh, you know some people would call maybe the, the authoritarian playbook. This is basically you basically accuse your adversary of doing what you're doing. So what does the Maduro regime accuse Colombia? They accuse them of being a narco state of facilitating the drug trade throughout South America into the world. Uh, and that's what we know Venezuela is doing. But if you can get ahead of the problem and use intense disinformation campaigns, you can trick and fool a lot of people. And unfortunately, it's working. I'm here in Colombia right now, and there's a lot of people. You know, one of the biggest talking points that I hear while I'm in Colombia, because they're obviously in election season, and one of the most concerning talking points that I'm hearing from Colombians is uh, that they feel that they're already worse than Venezuela. You hear this repeatedly, like, oh, you know, our country's already screwed. We're already worse than Venezuela. 
which is it's kind of you know I understand there's problems here in Colombia and there historically has been problems and you know COVID's exacerbated a lot of things, but Venezuela is on another level of humanitarian situation. I mean, the level of hunger there is next to Haiti, which is historically the the, the country with the biggest famine in in, in the whole Western Hemisphere. Uh, the level of political repression, the lack of freedoms. I mean, we're talking about a North Korea type situation in the case of Venezuela. In Colombia, we're talking about a you know fledgling democracy, a, a country that's in a lot of tr- trouble and has always had uh, a sort of insurgency that's been trying to dismantle it. But it's nowhere near Venezuela. But the disinformation works and it's got people thinking that and, and that kind of uh, false narrative allows people to make uh, bad choices during an election season. I want to go back to something you had mentioned earlier that has something to do with what you're talking about right now, which is how much Venezuela is willing to undermine Colombia's democracy and sort of put it into the sphere of influence that it finds itself under in tandem with Russia. And it has to do specifically with remarks that come from the vice president of Venezuela's Socialist Party, Diosdado Cabello. He's the number two man in Maduro's government, and he suggested uh, just yesterday as a recording that they should conduct a military operation similar to Russia's in Ukraine, literally saying, I'm not an expert on the subject of what happens in Ukraine, but the more time passes, the worse it'll be for the Nazis of Ukraine, because of course he's using those same buzzwords that have been force-fed to the world by by the Kremlin, this whole denazification thing, right? Saying that denazification needs to take place. And he said, why don't they take the opportunity to decocainize Colombia to see what's left after that? So I want to get your thoughts on those comments. Yeah, I, I saw the comments by Diaz Dado Cabello. I think, I think uh, so that's interesting because we got to think about what his target audience is, right? Because Obviously, it's not me and you. It's not the Western world. It's not the international community. I don't even think it's the majority of the urban centers in Colombia. But he's talking at the lowest common denominator. He's talking at the people that would probably not have, you know, what someone call low, low information voters or people that don't have a lot of access to just more robust academic circles or things like that where they can dig into the history of these things. But um, I think he's drawing a sentiment that the certain parts of the population of the world is looking at in terms of what's the number one topic in the world right now, which is the Russia-Ukraine war, and trying to tie that to Venezuela. Um, but there's there's some there's some elements there that are very dangerous because, you know, if this is what's this is what's dangerous with what Vladimir Putin's doing because I mean there's obviously a lot of things that are dangerous, but if there's legitimization of his argument as to why he invaded Ukraine, then that opens Pandora's box for any autocrat in the world to invade their neighbor under historical precepts. In this, in the case of uh, Russia, right, his argument was that, uh, you know, the whole Nazification and whatever of Ukraine was going back to the pre-World War II and then even pre-World War I scenarios where the Nazis were forming inside Ukraine. And then he goes even further to that and he says, well, this was actually historically Russian territory. And, and, you know, you go into the history of the Kievan Rus in the 10th century and the, and the birth of Kiev as becoming part of the Russian empire. And he, and he basically taps into that nationalistic pride that some of the Russians uh, feel. Uh, and he uses that a precept to say that basically that Ukraine was always part of the empire, always part of the federation. And uh, there's been some takeover since World War I and World War II uh, of, of Nazis that essentially tried to escape and, and, and have took over the land. That argument, right, that argument can be applied with China and Taiwan, not the Nazi part, but the part of saying that we lost territory that was unjustly taken away from us. 
uh, can be applied to southern Iraq and Iran, could be applied to Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, Maduro could easily get up there and say, you know what, the 17th century, the Gran Colombia, that was a great idea. It was Western imperialists and narco traffickers that took it away from us, and we need to fight that and take it back. And we may not think that those are serious arguments, but there's more and more people around the world that are believing that propaganda. And that's the, that's what propaganda does. I mean, if it's really effective, it does change the hearts and minds. And I think that's what's dangerous about what's taking place, because at the end of the day, you know, we can cut it any which way, but Russia's invasion of Ukraine has all to do with a hegemonic vision that Vladimir Putin has that he began in 2000 when he became uh, the head of Russia. The same applies to Venezuela. Their efforts to destabilize Latin America and take over Colombia begins with the Bolivarian Revolution in Hugo Chavez and extends with Nicolas Maduro to today. So uh, they're looking to legitimize this argument. They're looking to advance this propaganda and, and they're aiming it towards what we would call like the displaced and disgruntled populations inside every society because they think that that's the ones that are going to rise up and support them. So it's dangerous. I think we have to be very careful with this. Um, I, I hope people don't fall for that propaganda, but unfortunately, you know, it, it's good propaganda because it has elements of truth in it. There is a lot of cocaine in Colombia. That doesn't mean that Colombia, the Colombian government is the one that's trafficking the cocaine. It means that there's a lot of drug traffickers in Colombia, and then most notably are the same drug traffickers that work with the Maduro regime. They're probably the biggest cartel today. Back in the day, it would have been the Medellin cartel, Pablo Escobar. You know, we've all seen narcos, and then you had the Cali cartel. But today, the biggest cartel inside Colombia is probably the FARC, uh, the 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 different dissidents of the FARC, the, the Segunda Marquetalia, or the the Tenth Front in Gentil Duarte, are probably the biggest uh, cocaine traffickers inside Colombia. And those, at least a faction of those, the Segunda Marquetalia, is allied with the Maduro regime. So so they're 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 trying to pull the wool over a lot of people's eyes. Uh, hopefully it doesn't work, but unfortunately it, it tends to have some effect. So to what extent do you think that, I'm, I'm sure you saw this, but President Biden announced, I think this was about a week ago or a little bit before that, he announced that he's going to be designating Colombia as a major non-NATO ally. So to what extent do you think that these developments have to do with that designation? And what are the implications of designating Colombia as a major non-NATO ally? Yeah, so this this is something that was in the works a long time ago, and and really, frankly, should have happened before the pandemic. But you know, things everything got put on hold, and, and you know, here we are today. But I think the timing isn't the best because, um, as we could see with Diosdado Cabello's propaganda and the Maduro regime's talking points, they are trying to convince uh, segments of these populations in Latin America that Colombia is the bad guy. And and part of that is by tying them to NATO, even though this is a non-NATO major ally, but it's considered part of the international community in terms of defense agreements. And they're trying to paint uh, the Duque government as a sense of an abusive, genocidal government. So I don't think that this that this action necessarily would in and of itself do that, but it, it, it's fodder for the ammunition of, of what the Maduro regime. So that's, that's the negative side. The positive side of this is Colombia is, as I mentioned before, probably the one of, if not the most professional military service inside uh, Latin America in, in the region. Um, there's actually a special operations competition that happens annually in the region called Fuerzas Comandos. Uh, it was suspended last year because of COVID. I think they're going to have it. It usually happens around August, September of every year. And it's basically when you take the special operations soldiers and in, in, in units of, of every, not of every country, but of the participating countries in the region, and you have them compete, kind of like a special operations Olympics. And uh, for the last 10 years, I think, or, or around then, Colombia's always wins that competition, just to show you how that they're very competitive. They're very well trained. 
uh, and they're very effective. And they've been fighting uh, the FARC and they've been fighting these kind of insurgencies in their country uh, for a very long time. So I think it's overdue in terms of the meritocracy of Colombia being noted as probably one of the most important strategic partners in Latin America. But the timing falls during this Russia-Ukraine war and the Diosdado Maduro's talking points. So they're obviously going to spin this in their favor. Yeah. And the other thing that seems really, really interestingly timed was, as I mentioned from the beginning, that sudden strategy of reproachment that the Biden administration seems to want to pursue. Probably it seems like it wa- it has to do with the administration's decision to ban the imports of Russian oil and gas, of course, in retaliation for Russia's assault on Ukraine. They're looking to scramble for alternative resources. And in doing so, we again, we had that delegation that visited Venezuela. Um, it was headed by, I can't remember what his name is, but someone from the National Security Council and the special envoy for hostage affairs, who has been looking to release uh, several U.S. citizens that right now are unjustly detained in Venezuela. And make no bones about it, I'm, I'm all for any release of American citizens, especially because through no fault of their own, they've been there languishing for for years now. But this, uh, this oil supply angle is um, it's really concerning, but I would love to get your take on it. Yeah, so a couple of things there. The the hostage uh, negotiations or the release of American prisoners, we could talk touch on that in a second. But let me touch first on the visit, right, which I think is, again, ill-timed and, and, and just, just sends the wrong message uh, of the Biden administration and the Security Council going to visit Venezuela. Now, this has been in the works. If you remember, there was a CIA plane that landed in Caracas about a month and a half ago, and people speculated as to what that was about. They found out that there was a hostage negotiator from the State Department that was on that flight. So I think there's been conversations uh, between the Maduro regime and the Biden administration, back-channel conversations happening for a little while. But I think here is what uh, is my problem with this. It, It doesn't really reflect the reality of what the alliances are today in the 21st century. If this was 20 years ago, Okay, great. We could talk to Venezuela about having a specific policy where with oil and gas or with whatever, and then you could talk to Russia about something else and China about something else. But today's uh, security environment, today's uh, geopolitical landscape, uh, these countries work together and they've built uh, mutual cooperation, joint capabilities over about decades at this point. So to think that the Maduro regime is going to have a policy that's going to be different or separate from Russia's interest in not just Venezuela, but Latin America writ large, is wishful thinking at best and a fool's errand at worst. And we would probably be falling into a direct trap being laid by the Maduro regime itself to both delegitimize the United States, but also make us look like a fool in the international community. I mean, this kind of already happened at the beginning of the Russia-Ukraine war, where you know before the Biden administration applied the sanctions on Russia, they went to China and tried to get support from the Chinese government, from the Communist Party of China, to say, "Listen, you know we're going to sanction Russia. Are you on board?" That doesn't reflect any of the reality of the the Sino-Russia cooperation over the last twenty years, uh, and and not to mention that Vladimir Putin's been back and forth to Beijing for I don't know how many times in the last two months because he knew that in order to invade Ukraine, he needs to get China's. Uh, 100% backing, which he has. So it, it's kind of the same thing. The same, it's the same. It's like, it seems like the Biden administration doesn't have a clear eyed view of the way the world works in today's day and age. And it kind of maybe, I don't know if it's naive or it's just lack of inform, not informed or, or what it is, but it, it's just not going to work. And, and, and I think that, you know, 
that's going to reflect itself over time with with these kind of failed policies. The Maduro regime is probably at its strongest point ever uh, that that it've had in its, since 2013, um, and they've survived the max pressure campaign by the Trump administration. They've also survived the sanctions, and by extension, they feel like they're somewhat victorious uh, at this stage and age. So I don't see any incentive for them to want to sit down with the White House, or much less the Venezuelan opposition, and people think the sanctions are really hurting them. Yeah, they may hurt institutionally Venezuela, but they're not hurting the regime itself because I guarantee Nicolas Maduro doesn't have property or money inside the United States. I mean, he knows better than to do that. And I think that you know, what we've realized over time, and this is this was a big lesson in the Max Pressure campaign uh, by the Trump administration, which I supported a lot of the efforts by the Trump administration on Venezuela, but I also knew that a lot of it was short-sighted. And my criticism of the Max Pressure campaign was that it was it had a premise that the Maduro regime cared about governing Venezuela because that pressure that we placed on them while it squeezed its resources, both illicit and formal resources by sanctioning the oil sector, uh, it, it only hurt their ability to keep the lights on in Venezuela. But that assumes that he cares about keeping the lights on in Venezuela. And what we learned from the years prior when they were sanctioned is they really didn't care about that anyway because they were eroding their institutions on their own lack of failed economic policies. So I think what we learned over that is that uh, they don't need a whole lot of resources to maintain what they call a cupola, uh, just a, a, a tight-knit regime uh, that's more focused on destruction than production and is more focused on expansion than consolidating and governing a country like Venezuela. So I think that's the big lesson that we learn in this case. And, and I think that it applies to other regimes throughout the world, Russia, uh, Iran, and, and, and other complex situations. So I think that's what we got to learn. And then to touch on the hostage thing, Yes, like you, I'm you know all in favor of of getting Americans out of jail, unjustly imprisoned in uh, Venezuela, and and whatever we can do to help that, I'm I'm in favor of that, and I commend the Biden administration for 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 the two Americans that were released, and 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 you know whatever we had to negotiate to get that, uh, in some sense, you know we'll see if if, if it was too much, but I I'm, I'm happy that they're home. That said, we the 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 art of negotiating for hostages and and the the complexity about it is you don't want to establish a precedent. You don't want to create a moral hazard. You don't want to incentivize that behavior where a regime thinks that the best way that they can get concessions is to take more hostages. And if that's the lesson that the Maduro regime learned, which is the lesson that the Cuban regime learned, uh, then that's a very bad lesson. And that could put Americans in much more in trouble, and, and not just inside Venezuela, but in surrounding territories where the regime has networks that they may capture a, a, an American and use them as leverage for concessions on sanctions, on diplomacy, on whatever uh, t against the United States. So I think that's the careful nature that we have to do. Hopefully they negotiated this well. Hopefully they didn't set a precedent, uh, but we'll see in due time. It's really sad what's happening with some of these folks too that are languishing in prison. I mean, I, I don't know if you heard about the story of, uh, I was reading an article about him, uh, Matthew Heath. Matthew Heath, I don't know it's why. the brain, right? Yeah, I have no idea what the hell he's doing in there. They say yeah. that he's he was part of like a failed coup in there, but he was telling uh, they, they've delayed his trial a bunch of times, right? And they say that he was tortured, which unfortunately I believe because that unfortunately aligns with far too many other uh, testimonies that have been provided by uh, former prisoners saying that they they stripped him naked, they gave him electric shocks, they strapped him to a car battery, all sorts of just terrible things, this guy Matthew Heath. 
it's just terrible because you're, you're right. I mean, we, we absolutely want to secure their release, but at the same time, the fact that they're using them as political pawns show that they're not supposed to be there to begin with. Because if they were, they would give them a fair trial and due process. But to your point, these are concepts that are so foreign to the rule of law in Venezuela that rule of law in Venezuela is really an oxymoron. I think by every conceivable metric, Venezuela ranks dead last or at the very bottom, just bottom of the bottom when it comes to these concepts of rule of law, judicial processes, anything like that. And it's hard because to the detriment of the Biden administration, it's hard to apply our understanding of a liberal democracy, rule of law, these things that we that we cherish in the West, really, it's hard to conceive this notion being applicable apples to apples in countries that are so kleptocratic, so autocratic like Venezuela. I mean, literally the day right after, for example, or a couple of days right after that meeting, I, I don't know if you saw this, Joseph, but just two days after that meeting, there was an international diplomacy forum or something like that hosted in Antalya in Turkey, where both Russia and Venezuela sent delegations to attend. And at this event, you had the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, meet with Vice President Delcy Rodriguez, and she described him as a good friend in that meeting. And they, they were chumming it up. And again, this is right after they had that conversation, that meeting with the delegation from the United States. And after that meeting, just to add insult to injury, or prior to that meeting, Sergei Lavrov met with his counterpart from Ukraine and said, oh, we're the ones being attacked. We're the ones that were being provoked by Ukraine. So this idea that Venezuela is going to break away from Russia anytime soon, based on my observations so far, is much, much easier said than done. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you're essentially encapsulating is this larger problem that we have in the world. And I think this is where I think Venezuela really was underestimated because it was a center point of this global axis that's challenging the world order. Uh, but it's the center point for the Western Hemisphere, like on the area where we live, where we travel, where we trade, is this side of the world, is the Western Hemisphere, the New World. And, and Venezuela was that linchpin for all these other conflicts throughout the world that are bubbling and that some have already erupted, like the Ukraine crisis, but you know, coming up soon will be the Iraq-Syria crisis, which already happened again, and then there's Taiwan in, in Asia-Pacific. But running into this situation is that the world is very much in different fragmented orders. Uh, it's a multipolar world. It's We've gone past the Cold War, which is a bipolar world, and it never really surfaced into what some thought was going to be a unipolar world with the what, you know, what Francis Fukuyama would have called the end of history and this, you know, liberal democracy would have uh, prevailed. Uh, but what happens, as they say in combat, your enemy gets a vote. So our, the enemies of the international order of liberal democracy have figured this out and they figured out how to deal with this challenge and they're applying it now. And and, and I think that's what uh, we're running into this conflict. I think and the, an analogy that I, I've heard some people say, and I like to use it is essentially we're playing two different games. Uh, like the, the West is playing let's say, uh, basketball, right? We're playing by a set of rules that we've defined since after World War II, and we're assuming that the rest of the world's going to play and abide by those rules, but the rest of the world, the other side of the world is playing football or some other you know, some other sport. They're completely different rules, completely different um, maneuvers and different, a, a different setting of the table. And that's the challenge that we have at Venezuela. We think that we, we can negotiate with Venezuela using the rules that we know 
and abide by and assuming that they're going to do the same. And we know that they don't care about that. Uh, and, and so any agreement, any negotiation, any type of conversation with Venezuela has to be done with the premise that they can't be trusted uh, because they've shown historically over time, empirically, that they don't care about the international order. And as a matter of fact, they're working with the big powers in the world to change that international order. And that's at the heart of their alignment with Russia and China and Iran and, and, and these other global accesses that we're seeing. So I think that's a big point of, of a lot of this. This is why a lot of people were very frustrated with the negotiations that were happening in Mexico that I think are going to be restarted at some point. Because what we saw is the Maduro regime is basically manipulating the circumstances. They're basically squeezing those negotiations for every ounce of legitimacy that they can get, uh, delegitimizing and making full of the democratic system, uh, and basically just you know running amok on democratic systems worldwide and, and making the United States look very weak. And I think that's, that, that's the challenge that we have. I mean, we have to be able to project strength uh, even in the face of uh, of an adversary that would look to be conventionally weaker, which would be the Maduro regime. But it, it, it tells you that the Maduro regime knows what they're doing in terms of their their warfare strategy. And and I think to them, this is way more than just, you know, let's say uh, uh, illicit activities or criminal uh, networks. I mean, they, they're involved in all that for sure. But they, I think, see this as war and they see this as winning and losing. This is a zero-sum game for them. Uh, and the criminality aspect, those are all means to an end. Uh, we were actually talking about this on the podcast that even drug traffickers today, they're not just uh, selling drugs to make a profit. Obviously, profit making is the number one purpose. But we've we've had testimony from major drug cartel leaders say, you know what, if fentanyl kills the gringo, that's even better. You know, And that doesn't sound entrepreneurial at all to me, like if you're killing your customer. But hey, you know, they don't really like the United States anyway. You know? So so that's, there's this kind of anti-American sentiment that has a definition of how the world should be, and they're imposing that uh, upon the Western society. And most of us in the Western world just don't understand that that's happening. Well, like we have a hard time seeing that. We, we have a, a hard time understanding the nature of it. And, and I think the Biden administration is stuck in that complexity and is stuck in that confusion. I mean, you're not going to begin to understand the complexity of Venezuela until you start unraveling and unpacking their intimate con connections with Russia, China, and Iran. Once you begin to understand that, then you begin to understand the next, the, the center of gravity and the complexity of the Venezuela crisis. And I'd argue, uh, Rafael, that most Venezuelans don't even don't even get that. You know, my conversations I've had with Venezuelan opposition on all sides, most of them did not see this the way it is today. Uh, now they might be talking about it because it's more evident. You have Iranian supermarkets and gas shipments and Russian weapons and, and Chinese uh, bankers. But going back even just four or five years ago, you know, and I would talk about these things, they would say, no, 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 they, they, that's all periphery. This is all about Cuba. This is all about the FARC. This, and now what we're learning is, yeah, the Cuban, the FARC, and everybody there, but that's the periphery. The center of gravity of this is the big powers because Venezuela is that instrument to be able to change the international order on the Western part of the world. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that we had talked about thoroughly when when we did our first episode together Um Way back when, it's actually been quite a while. But it's a pre-pandemic, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and you you pointed out that center of gravity, and it's very much still relevant. In fact, yeah, it's as relevant today as it was when we last spoke. So this idea that we can head back to negotiations, I I have not seen President Biden speak about it at all. But uh, his press secretary Jen Psaki was fielding questions from the press corps about it, and. When they asked her about it, she pointed to this idea of going back to negotiations as a sign of success. 
indicating that the meeting between these high-level officials from the United States and the Maduro regime went well because they had agreed to go back to negotiations. But you ask Venezuelans, and they'll just roll their eyes and say, "Here we go again." Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't pass the common sense test. Like the sign of success of a meeting is another meeting. Like that's like that's the definition of Washington bureaucracy, right? Like, what do we accomplish here, folks? We got another meeting on the calendar. I was like, great. Um, that's not what's going to get us uh, to anywhere where we, the Venezuelan people can have any kind of sense of liberty. That's just going to prolong the situation and the suffering. And then that's the problem with these negotiations. That's exactly what the Maduro regime uses them for. They just prolong the timeline so that they can do what the Chinese say, like, uh, you know, you may have the, the time, but we have the watch, you know, so they can control the timeline and control the actions that follow. So, yeah, I don't, I, I, I haven't, yeah, I don't think I've heard officially that they've announced they're going back to negotiations, but this has been kind of the, the conversation in Washington. And I think, you know, I think some of the, the, the Venezuela watchers have been talking about this. And I know that the, the, the U.S. officials that, ha, that are, you know, our, our virtual embassy and our, our ambassador to, to, to Venezuela have talked about, you know, wanting to go back to negotiations with the Maduro regime, or at least the, the opposition wanting to go back to you. And that's another point I wanted to bring up, uh, Rafael. Uh, uncharacteristically uh, and unusually quiet has been the Venezuelan opposition during this rapprochement between the Biden administration and the Maduro regime, because, you know, they obviously, uh, I don't, this, I don't see how this favors them at all. I think it actually delegitimizes them because it, almost in some sense is saying that we're not recognizing them as a government anymore and we're recognizing this regime, which the United States policy uh, since 2019 has been to not recognize the Maduro regime as a government and to recognize the interim government of Juan Guaido. But uh, but but I don't see much noise coming from the interim government. And that, that actually is a question that I've had for, for, for a lot of my friends that are in the Venezuelan opposition to say, you know, what's like, why aren't they making a bigger stink of this than, than what would probably you would think that would be uh, pro problematic for them? Well, in fairness, part of the problem is they were sidelined. They were completely sidelined and they were completely blindsided. I mean, I remember reading that on Sunday, they ended up meeting with uh, Interim President Juan Guaido and with Gerardo Blyde, who is another participant or was a participant in those talks between the government and the opposition that were facilitated um, in Mexico, which of course fell through the minute that the United States justifiably locked up Alex Saab, a Colombian drug trafficker turned Venezuelan diplomat, which the only reason they, they backed out is because they wanted to include him as a part of the negotiations, which makes zero sense. But again, that just goes back to this idea that they, they wouldn't have worked these negotiations in the first place. But point being, they were sidelined. Uh, Juan Guaido didn't even know that they were that they were going, and they only found out after they found out after the uh, the high level officials actually got there. Now, from what I've read, and I could be wrong, they they're adamantly opposed to any sort of sanctions relief prior to any conditions that will help lead towards a renewal for. Um, for elections. If that doesn't happen, then the United States will end up considering the import of Venezuelan oil sans any real or credible promise from the regime to restart, uh, not just restart negotiations, which are going to go nowhere, but also to make a promise to hold presidential elections. And as you know, as well as anybody who listens to this show by now, a promise from the Maduro regime isn't worth 
it's not worth, I mean, it's in the negatives as far as its value. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I mean, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they, they got blindsided. But uh, I think afterwards, they could have made a lot of noise, right? Because, I mean, we all learned about this. And I think many Venezuelans were very vocal at, at, at criticizing the administration and just basically saying, asking questions, saying, what's what's this all about? Why are you doing this? And kind of, you know, drawing uh, attention to kind of the the misguided nature of thinking that Russia and Venezuela are going to separate because the United States, you know, talks to Maduro. Uh, and so anyhow, but, you know, all, all that aside, I know that they got uh, a lot on their hands and, and you, know, the, you know, the Venezuela problem is very complex. Um, I, w- one thing I would say is I think, and this is one of the things, uh, Rafael, that you probably noticed over time is, you know, the the, the conversation about Venezuela, and I'm, I'm talking, I'm in Bogota right now, but I'm talking from the Washington perspective, it, it the, the volume has been turned down quite a bit. Uh, and we, we remember when we had our last conversation, actually, I think it was I don't know if it was 2019 or 2020, but I remember it was pre-pandemic. Venezuela was at the forefront of a lot of the conversations that were happening when it comes to Latin America and even just U.S. national security. And that's been uh, drastically different over time. And I think part of that is because the the, the Biden administration has decided not to make uh, a clear Venezuela policy. Uh, you know, they kind of just kept the status quo uh, uh, that the Trump administration had. And there's a lot of authorities and budgets that have already been allocated. So there's, you know, different... Uh, work that's being done by the State Department and USAID and others, but there hasn't been a clear strategy on how they're going to deal with the Venezuelan challenge, which is uh, cl- clearly one of the most complex challenges in the Western Hemisphere. But with that, what I think that being here now in Latin America, I'm here in Colombia, the, the fact that it's not getting talked about as much doesn't mean that there's not a lot happening. In fact, uh, I think Venezuela is very, very active at not so much inside their country, but in their neighboring states. I think they're very active in Brazil, uh, very active here in Colombia, and actually very active in Guyana as well, which is on the eastern side of the region. And and the, the comments and the statements that come from Diosdado Cabello, as, as silly as they sound, I think are part of an effort that's increasing over time to create greater elements of destabilization inside their neighboring states. And we're definitely feeling that inside Colombia. Like, it's hard to draw a straight line from the Maduro regime to different destabilizing elements or events in Colombia. But if you go through the layers, and some of those layers involve the FARC and they involve uh, the ELN and others, you eventually could start to see a trend to where the the instability inside Colombia uh, absolutely favors the Maduro regime and its ability to project strength abroad. Let's go back one second, actually, to the situation with Guyana, because that's another important flashpoint that I don't think gets a whole lot of attention, but it could be another potential site for skirmishes, whether they be physical, whether they be political, we're not sure. But these two countries, Venezuela and Guyana, have been fighting bitterly over this region that Venezuelans know to be the Essequibo. So talk to us a little bit about what exactly the Essequibo region is and why it's so relevant now. So I'm going to kind of refer to the historians to talk about the territorial disputes between uh, Venezuela and Guyana, which I, to what I understand, has some legitimacy in terms of what the Venezuelans claim was territory that was taken from them. But let's let's go back a little bit to what we were talking about with Russia, Ukraine. What, what we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, at the conversation, was it's a very dangerous precedent to use an argument of lost territory, regardless if it was lost legitimately or not. But then to say that territory belongs to us, and then to reclaim that territory through an invasion or any, any kind of armed conflict, I think that's a very dangerous precedent. And this is exactly the precedent that the Maduro regime is trying to build 
not just with Colombia, we talked about that, but with Guyana. And I think in the Guyana case, it has more legitimacy because if I were to take a poll, and I, I'm guessing here, but I'm, I'm going to take this guess. If I were to take the poll of you know 10 Venezuelans, I probably think eight or nine of the of the 10 Venezuelans are, are going to believe and are going to say that the Isacubio is theirs. You know? uh, in fact, whenever I've seen people show the Venezuelan map, uh, if it doesn't include the Isacubio, it's often considered an incomplete map, correct? Uh, and so I think that this is something that the Maduro regime understands and it's something that they're going to manipulate. I thought I think we started to see sentiments of this, of how they're going to do this. And let me see if I could explain this during the Olympics. Because uh, do you remember, I think it was the Summer Olympics, do you remember when there was a, a good number of Venezuelan athletes that got uh, medals, I think mostly gold medals, mm-hmm. yes. sports like weightlifting and track and field? Mm-hmm. And the, the, the immediate reaction from the Venezuelan diaspora around the world and, and the, the Venezuelan uh, people inside the country was euphoria. They were very happy because, I mean, Venezuelans have suffered dramatically over the, the last decade or, or, or more. A lot of them have left the country, obviously, and then, you know, many of them are just starting to recover their lives and, and be able to have a, a decent standard of living. And to see success on any level for a Venezuelan is, is a sense of national pride. I mean, they, they still love their country. And, and, and for a second, you know, maybe just for a few seconds, I felt like the politics and the differences with the regime were put aside and everyone was celebrating these athletes that did incredibly well and won medals in the Olympics. But then what happened? Then we started to learn that these athletes were you know, being funded by the Maduro regime or maybe not funded or supported to some level because everything in Venezuela is pretty much controlled by the regime. And then and then they started to become some, some of them, I don't know about all of them, but some of the athletes started to become very sympathetic to the regime. Some of them even held phone calls with Nicolas Maduro himself. Yep, and the worst example of that, unfortunately, is our record-setting Olympic gold medalist, Yulimar Riojas. Such a shame. Yeah, so I think what we learned in that situation is there is a sentiment and, and there's a threshold to where the Venezuelan people, both the diaspora and inside Venezuela, are willing to put their differences with the regime aside if it has to do with national pride in history. And my my sense of what Maduro regime was doing was a psychological test to see at what point he can push the narratives on things like the Isaquibio. Because maybe the Isaquibio is an issue to where the Venezuelans believe so strongly in, 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 their, in their psychology and in their conscience that that is Venezuelan territory that was unjustly taken away from them, that they actually inadvertently support the Maduro regime's efforts. And that's going to be a tricky challenge. It's going to be a very difficult challenge for for democracies and others to deal with. I think Colombia is actually a lot of, in some ways, an easier one because it's, I mean, you know, the the de, what do you call it, the decocainization, whatever you said that that that's really like a silly silly thing. But you know, people believe it, but it's not that serious. Mm-hmm. The, this the one on the Sequibio that has a historical precedent and legitimacy that Venezuelans believe, and I think as I mentioned, I think eight out of nine, eight or nine out of ten Venezuelans would probably believe that that is their territory. But I think you're right to point it out because, you know, we're all looking at Colombia, and, and but I think Ukraine. I'm sorry, I think uh, uh, Guyana might be the first shot fired by the Maduro regime. And, and, and in fact, speaking with folks in Guyana, uh, I know that they're very concerned about this. They, they're looking at the Ukraine situation almost like as a as a template for something that may end up happening to them. Um, and, and and my argument to this, and I, again, like you, I, I I respect the sentiments of the Venezuelan people. Uh, I don't know the history as well as I should, and you know, probably will get uh, spun up on that pretty soon. Uh, but I would say this: what I do know is that the Isaquibio region, culturally and in some ways economically, really isn't connected to Venezuela. Like they don't even speak Spanish in that part of uh, 
the border of Guyana and Venezuela. They're more Afro-Guyanese. Uh, and also, uh, I should say that the Maduro regime, or more uh, specifically the Chavista regime, because going back to Hugo Chavez, did nothing to reclaim that territory up until recent years when they discovered oil. Before that, they did nothing to actually you know, take this to international arbitration or to court. And then uh, once the 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 oil deposits were discovered in the water in, in, in the maritime border between Venezuela and Guyana, then all of a sudden Venezuela got very interested, or the Maduro regime more specifically, or the Chavez regime, got very interested in, in reclaiming the territory. So I think it's important to note that uh, there's some clear interests and incentives that are being driven by the regime. And, and my caution to most of the Venezuelan listeners and the people is that I understand, you know, lost territory and understanding, especially if it was unjustly taken from you. But in today's day and age, I think we have to respect sovereign boundaries and sovereign territories because uh, this is essentially what defines the international order, trade, liberty, all this is defined by sovereign borders. And if we start to play with that, we're running down a slippery slope of redrawing the international order based off remaking borders and maps. Uh, And I think that's at the heart of what Russia is trying to do with Ukraine. And it could be what Maduro is going to end up doing with uh, both Colombia and Guyana in, in short order. There's a lot of validity in what you're saying as far as how this is being used as a uh, as a cudgel with which to try and weaponize nationalism in Venezuela. We see that happening also with the treatment of migrants. So unfortunately, we see that there are episodes of xenophobia that Venezuelans have to endure throughout the hemisphere. Unfortunately, it's happening in Colombia. We've seen it happen in places like Peru, in Brazil, Argentina, Chile. It's been particularly bad in Chile. But instead of uh, making it an issue about the reason being that they're there, a byproduct of the failed policies of the Maduro regime, the Maduro regime has used this case of xenophobia as that in and of itself, when they are the ones that are responsible for accelerating the migrant crisis. Actually, before recording, you and I were talking about how not only are they accelerating the crisis, but in a lot of ways, they're actually facilitating it and weaponizing migration. No, I think uh, you're making a, a good point here. And it's something I think a lot of the listeners haven't touched on a lot because um it's something that is is kind of lost in this bigger conversation of mass migration. So I think it's important to first, we need to separate what is mass migration, irregular migration, or even illegal migration uh, that come from natural causes, whether it's uh, socioeconomic problems, natural disasters, or in some cases, even war, you know, and like there's, there's been wars that have driven refugees and mass migration. Uh, which that would be not maybe not less of a natural cause, but nonetheless, it's it's organic because it's a consequence of that action from something that has been termed strategic engineered mass migration. Now, that's not my term. Uh, that's actually a term that was developed by a professor from Tufts University called Dr. Kelly Greenhill. She actually wrote a book, a really good book on this. Uh, it's called Weapons of Mass Migration, kind of going off the weapons of mass destruction. And what she did in her book was she basically documented over the period of about 150 years elements of where migration has been manipulated by state and non-state actors uh, for specific political and geopolitical purposes. And that's what is strategic engineered migration. It's when you uh, purposely induce or catalyze and or manipulate migration for political, geopolitical purposes. I think this concept applies perfectly to Venezuela. 
because the economic collapse, uh, along with the persecution and the high levels of insecurity that has driven the humanitarian situation inside Venezuela that has sparked the migration, is 100% man-made. There was no natural disaster. There was no conventional war. There was no just, just with no catalyzing event other than a regime that systematically and purposely dismantled its institutions inside its country to the point that the people really had no options but to flee in grave numbers. We're talking about almost 10% of what was the population of Venezuela. Upwards of 6 million migrants uh, have left since 2014. And I know this is no news to you, Rafael, but this, I think, has been done on purpose. And why does they do this? Well, I think the reason that they do this is because with those migration channels, they're able to place additional pressure on neighboring countries and by extension weaken the border infrastructure and the immigration infrastructure in those countries that impedes their national sovereignty. And I think that's at the heart of what the Maduro regime's grand strategy is for Latin America. We talked about this pretty much throughout the podcast of redrawing the map, uh, basically erasing territorial sovereignty, of imposing illicit networks and taking those, using those networks to take over territory. Uh, and migration is one of those things that you can weaponize for those purposes. I mean, we saw this with the Central American caravans. Uh, and we've seen elements of this. We we actually also saw this with the Russian, I'm sorry, the Belarusians in Poland, if you remember in November of last year, where there was a mass migration from Belarus to Poland, mm -hmm. that the Poles, they specifically said that this is being driven by Putin. Putin's using migration as a weapon to collapse our border. So I think these are all elements that are, that are part of it. And so what we did at, at SFS is we started to uh, unpack this a little bit and started to get into the details of how they're weaponizing migration. And, and we put a video out. It's on our YouTube. It's called Weaponized Migration. And what I did is just basically on a presentation I gave at the National Archives in Washington late last year, as we, we described this uh, scheme, essentially, that's being developed by the Maduro regime, both an illicit scheme to, for, to make illicit profits, but also as a scheme to take advantage of the U.S. southern border and, and the crisis that we're having uh, on our southern border. And so the scheme is basically this. like So, so historically... Venezuelan migration has gone south, right? It went to Colombia, then to Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, and some to Brazil. But it, it stayed within South America. Uh, it didn't go north because it's harder to go north. You have to cross uh, Caribbean or you have to go through the Darien Gap, and those are very hard border crop. And they're hard to traverse. So uh, the migrants uh, preferred the land routes. But this has become uh, increasingly harder for uh, for Venezuelan migrants because the countries, the, the 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 recipient countries, have made stricter controls. I mean, you mentioned some of the xenophobia, but there's also been stricter immigration controls on Venezuelans coming into, like for instance, for instance Chile or or Peru, uh, and so this has incentivized them to push north. But in that push north, the Maduro regime has created an additional incentive by a scheme that's been concocted by two institutions principally that are part of the regime. The first is the transportation uh, institution, which is their national airline, Conviasa, which we all know is is pretty much an airline used to transport weapons and drugs and terrorists. It's been documented. Such, of course, there's some that's legitimate tourists and others, but it, it's also been implicated in a lot of illicit activities. And the other is the immigration agency, which is SIMIT, which, again, has also been implicated in a lot of illicit activity, just as pretty much most of the government institutions have been inside Venezuela. So what, what, where this conversation starts is we've seen a tremendous uptick in 2021 of Venezuelan migrants going to the U.S. southern border. This didn't happen before. As I mentioned, they would go south. But in 2021, we saw a thousand percent increase from the previous year of Venezuelan migrants coming to the U.S. southern border, reaching to levels upwards of 60,000. Now, this is in the context of we've had a historic year 
of just uh, encounters and apprehensions at the U.S. southern border, more than 1.7 million in total. So the numbers of Venezuelans has gone up as well. But in that, what the Maduro regime did is they created a process to incentivize the migration through human smuggling facilitators. Uh, human smuggling facilitators are basically middlemen that basically create uh, connections between coyotes that smuggle migrants across the border and corrupt institutions both in Mexico and in Venezuela that allow the facilitation and the movement of these migrants. So what my understanding from the research that we've done is it's probably about five to ten to fifteen thousand dollars that it would cost for a Venezuelan migrant to pay and they initially pay the immigration agency to be able to get a passport and to be get put on a manifest to be able to be taken to Mexico in a direct flight from Conviasa. Uh, and then uh, be picked up by the human smuggling facilitators who would then connect them with the coyotes and take them across the border. So between five to $15,000, you can basically, in some sense, get guaranteed uh, entry into the United States. And obviously for many Venezuelans, this is very attractive because they're looking at places that they can settle and get away from uh, the humanitarian situation inside the country. So the first step is that, is essentially you get uh, a, you buy a ticket. You, you, instead of buying it through the airline, you, you pay the immigration agency. And the immigration agency then uh, facilitates the whole thing. So they give you the ticket, the passport, the, everything that you need to be able to get uh, into Mexico and into the United States. Uh, then you go to the, the next step, which is basically where you take the flight and you get connected to the facilitator networks that take you from, usually it's Cancun, ironically, but it could be Mexico City or it could be another city in Mexico, straight to the border. And we've seen this and verified this through the border patrol and border security officials on the border because what they've noticed is there's been in the Venezuelan migrants that they could detect them very easily visibly because they don't come uh, with, you know, the kind of the bags and the nylon bags or the big backpacks that the Central Americans come. They come with uh, overhead luggage, like the rolling luggage. Uh, they call them Versace migrants because they come well-dressed. They come like they came off a plane, basically. <laughs> they don't come like, they, like they, they've traversed the train or marched up some, like some of the caravans we're doing from Central America. But basically, they get off the plane, they go straight to the border. And then once they get to the border, they get connected with a coyote and the coyote arrange it. They give their passport to the coyote because they have to uh, uh, release their document. They don't have to cross with any documents. They cross over to the border and then their passport gets mailed to an address inside the United States uh, that they uh, would be their, their endpoint destination. So this is a legal migration. But what we've seen is what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So what could be used for migrants that are trying to leave and seek asylum or just seeking to leave and enter the United States, it's also an opportunity for criminals and terrorists to do the same. And this is where this case of Izambazi comes in. This is a, a Venezuelan Lebanese national. Uh, I think he's a 50-year-old male that he uh, essentially swam the Rio Grande. He, he took this flight to Cancun and took this uh, trip to the border and then crossed the border and got apprehended by uh, border officials uh, in, in Texas. And uh, when they were interviewing him and they were basically running his paperwork, they figured out that he was on a person of interest list by the FBI and, and U.S. authorities for being uh, suspected uh, of being tied to terrorist networks. Now, he's a Venezuelan Lebanese that comes from Nueva Esparta, comes from Marguerite Island. Oh. So I think we can guess which has, which, which uh, terrorist network that would be. Most likely would be Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he uh, then gets detained and, and he gets put in a, in a detention center awaiting his immigration trial, which was, I think, supposed to be in March of this year, I think in this month. But sometime in that, he was uh, detained in November of last year. Sometime in that process from November to March, uh, something very awkward and unusual happens. 
in the sense that he makes petitions that he wants to be uh, released from prison because he's worried about COVID because he supposedly had high comorbidities. And apparently his comorbidities, he was fat. He didn't really have a disease. He just was overweight. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the crazy thing is the immigration authorities bought it. And so they released him from the prison and he flees to Michigan. Uh, and it, where does he go in Michigan? He goes to Dearborn, Michigan, and, and and is you know no longer heard from again. Now some reporters inside Detroit were able to cover the story, and so they broke the story and, and put it out public. And plenty of questions have gone to the Department of Homeland Security and others, but I haven't heard any answers. But what we do is we did some digging on who Isambazi is, and this is the kicker: this guy did not need to come to the United States illegally or through the border. Matter of fact, he had been to the United States repeatedly from 2002 to 2012, to Miami, to Texas, to New, New Jersey. He owns property on Margarita Island. He goes to the the, the funeral, the death of relatives of Tarek Alasami. I mean, the guy is connected. He's well-connected inside Venezuela. So why is a guy that's well-connected with resource that owns property crossing the southern border, swimming the Rio Grande? It draws a lot of questions as the vulnerabilities that we have on our U.S. southern border and this, uh, basically how you can weaponize migration to be able to uh, attack your adversaries. That's unbelievable. So in summation, a man related to, ter- to well-known terrorist networks is let go by the U.S. government because he's a high COVID risk because he's overweight. It's It sounds like something that comes out of an Onion article. It's really hard not to listen to a story like this and just feel super disappointed. No, I, I, honestly, I when, I when I heard the story, like people call me, like I didn't know about this guy. I'm not tracking here. We've been across the board. And people called me and they were like, Joseph, do you know about this? I was like, no, I didn't know about this. And then they started telling me the the case, and then I I called a few friends that I have in DHS and in, in uh, CPB and, and Border Patrol, and they were all shocked. They were like, "What?" Like the the first thing they said is, if he was on a terror watch list, and and the CPB officer that interviewed him, he would not be allowed in this country. They do not allow people on terror watch lists inside the United States, whether it comes to the border or the airport. So that's for, first. That's weird. Second, releasing him over this COVID thing—that's just silliness. That should not happen, would not happen, that is highly irregular. So most of the folks that I talked to that are in the business uh, of border security or immigration security uh, told me this is highly unusual. So hopefully it's an outlier um, and it's not what's happening more frequently. But when you have 1.7 million plus encounters and apprehensions on the U.S. southern border, and that doesn't even count the gotaways, then we have a serious problem. Here's another quick data point that has less to do with Venezuela, but you know, in the context of the conversation, uh, my same, those same friends that I talked to inside the Border Patrol have told me that th- there's uh, hundreds of thousands of Russian military-age males that have come across the border in 2021. Uh, and so that's a big problem that they're seeing as well. So the U.S. southern border is a, a big national security vulnerability that we have, and it seems that the Maduro regime uh, knows that. It's really sad, too, because in the case of Isambazi, again, someone who's on FBI, the FBI's terror watch list and is pretty much opened the door by the FBI itself, yet you have not just grown men, but women and children who are making that dangerous journey from Venezuela, I might add, not going through this sort of illicit passport scheme that's being facilitated by the Maduro regime, but folks who are having to traverse literally through the most dangerous borders on planet Earth, including and especially that of the Darien Gap. I was watching a video just a couple of days ago of this horrible story of this uh, poor woman who 
was trying to cross the Darien Gap. And uh, in a second, I'd actually love if you can maybe describe to the audience exactly just why it has the reputation it has, because this woman was uh, trying to traverse the, the Darien Gap, which is right in between Panama and, and Colombia, and on her way to the United States from Venezuela, and she died. She died. She couldn't make it. And I think her, her son was uh, handed over to Panamanian authorities, but it just gives you an idea of how dangerous this journey truly is for people who uh, don't have the luxury that reportedly Isambazi did. So talk to us a bit about this Darien Gap and why it's so dangerous to, to trek. The Darien Gap historically has been untrekkable. It was really only uh, adventure seekers and or, or very well uh, incentivized drug mules and traffickers that would traverse that kind of area. But there's been an infrastructure that's been built over time to be able to facilitate the movement of more migrants across the Darien Gap, which is essentially incentivized for more migrants to attempt that route. But as you mentioned, it, it's still not easy because the, the hardest part is the weather conditions. I mean, uh, uh, you have to go through extreme weather conditions, both cold and heat. I mean, you're basically going through a jungle. And anyone that's been in a jungle uh, environment, you know that it, it can get very, very hot, obviously. And as, you know, that comes with all the, uh, the risks and vulnerabilities that heat can do, like heat strokes and mosquitoes and all kinds of weird bugs. But it also can get very cold at night, particularly within the rain. And then you could get frostbite and you could get frozen toes and all kinds of other things. And so one of the most horrific pictures I've ever seen was when I was on the Daring Gap was in Panama on the Panamanian side. And you would see the feet of the people that had crossed. And it like literally they almost had no soles on their feet. Uh, their feet were like just down to just straight meat and in some cases bone. And that's very horrific. Um, and people couldn't walk. They were being carried across. Um, it's, it's very tragic, uh, but the state of the world today is, you know, there's more and more migration because there's more and more conflict and there's more and more humanitarian disasters. And unfortunately, we're seeing more and more Venezuelans appear at the Darien Gap. And I think those are the, the most vulnerable of the vulnerable because they're the ones that really don't have, like you mentioned, they don't have the resources to take the flight to Mexico or to at least take a flight to even Guatemala or Nicaragua or Central America to, so they could do a, a shorter march up. These are the folks that literally cross into Colombia, then go through the Daring Gap into Panama and just literally walk their way all the way up, which is horrific. The Haitians are the other ones that have been taking that same trek uh, through the Daring Gap. And, and this is the sad part. Like nowadays, we have to talk about Venezuela within the context of Haiti, because within all indicators, whether it's uh, famine or just lack of economic freedom or just the overall humanitarian situation, Venezuela, the only thing it's close to in the region is Haiti. And, and Haiti's always historically been the humanitarian calamity of Latin America. So I think that this is this is a tragedy and this is a big part of what we're seeing with migration. And and this is what really upsets me because, you know, with this weaponized migration concept is a friend of mine in, in, in a Central American country once told me that he termed it different. He said, it, this is the weaponization of people in need. I mean, you're taking the most vulnerable of society and you're manipulating them and turning them into weapons for bigger objectives. And, and that's really... If that's not a human rights violation, I don't know what is. I mean, you're basically taking someone that's the only last option they have is to just move by foot and go to another place, and you're manipulating them for something that has nothing to do with why they're doing that. So I think that that's got to be uh, addressed, and it's got to be attended to by the international community. And by the United States. I mean, it goes to show if people are willing to risk their lives and go through something so treacherous, it doesn't make any sense to pivot to Venezuela and potentially swap out oil from one tyrant 
for oil from another. I, w- I would hope, as uh, actually Senator Bob Menendez pointed out, that the, the lives of Venezuelans are much worth much more than just a few barrels of oil, and we shouldn't be breathing new life into this into this rain that has led to people having to risk their lives and embark on such dangerous journeys. And with that, I actually want to go back to your podcast and video series. Number one, first and foremost, should we be expecting you on the Daring Gap anytime soon? <laughs> Not as a migrant, but uh, yeah, I'll probably go back uh, to go visit it. I, you know, with, with Border Wars, the video series, we're going to be visiting not just the Venezuelan borders, uh, but we're going to be visiting other border hotspots. There's the tribe border, the infamous tribe border in South America, which is a Hezbollah hotbed. Uh, there's actually interesting borders around Bolivia that I think are worth looking at. Uh, there's the Darien Gap. There's the Central American borders. There's obviously our border. And and it's not limited to just the Western Hemisphere. I mean, we may end up going to Europe looking at some of those borders because the idea of border wars is to essentially draw attention through the U.S. southern border crisis that I think is what most Americans are seeing and feeling, but make them understand that this is a symptom of conflicts first that are taking place in Latin America, but also a broader conflict that are taking place throughout the world. Uh, and, and it's part also of a totalitarian mindset of basically uh, impeding on national sovereignty, weakening that sovereignty, dismantling democracy, and taking the liberty and freedoms away from people in a sense of conquest and, and taking over uh, regions. And so what the Iranians are doing in Middle East, the Russians are doing in, in Central and Eastern Europe, and the Chinese all over uh, uh, the Pacific Islands, it, it extends over to what we're seeing in Latin America. So we're going to hopefully, you know, be going to a lot of places, but the next episodes that you can expect, there's an, uh, an episode that's already in production. That's already pretty much done on Cucuta. That'll be episode two. Uh, that was uh, a, it's a trip I took last year. Uh, and, and I think in the first episode, we focused a lot on the FARC uh, and, and explaining the whole FARC situation in the different factions and well, what we already discussed. And the second episode, we want to focus more on the ELN because that's the other big major group that really needs its attention. Um, and we also want to, obviously, all this all ties to the Maduro regime in Venezuela. And then the third video, and I'm getting a little ahead of myself because the rest of it is in production, so I'm not sure if this is going to be the third or the fourth or the order, but um, I definitely want to cover my cow. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and that's in the Guajira on the northern Venezuelan-Colombian border. And that's an area that really doesn't get a lot of attention. Uh, it's actually the first humanitarian corridor between uh, Venezuela and Colombia. They remember those infamous clap boxes mm-hmm. that were coming from Mexico. They would come through the Guajira. And that's a it's a border zone and it's a port area to where the Maduro regime has a lot of illicit activity. But it's also a Hezbollah hotbed. Uh, the Maikau is probably one of the biggest uh, cities that Hezbollah has a presence in inside Latin America, right up there with Ciudad de Este in Paraguay or uh, Foz de Guazú in Brazil or, or, or even Margarita Island in Venezuela. Maikau is right up there uh, with a historic Lebanese migration, but uh, a subversion by Hezbollah to the Lebanese communities inside uh, the Guajira. So we want to cover that. And then from there, we're going to go to other countries and other places. So. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and you'll get notifications of all these videos. Uh, both the videos and then the podcast will talk about some of this stuff. And actually, uh, Rafi, I should say the next episode, of the, we just released the first episode of the podcast, which is available on, on Spotify. And, and it's called Weaponized Drug Trafficking, where we talk about the U.S. southern border. But uh, the next episode is about Venezuela. And actually probably be two episodes because it was a long conversation. It was a conversation uh, between me and three what I call it a, like a conversation between me and three colonels, a colonel from Colombia, uh, a former colonel from uh, Venezuela, 
and a colonel from the United States. So I talked with three colonels about the situation in Venezuela. And what we did is we reflected on what's happened since 2019 in Venezuela mm-hmm. to kind of take the lessons learned from 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 that conflict uh, that we can apply to hopefully a new Venezuela strategy when the time is right. Oof. I, I, I absolutely want to see that one. That one and, and that My Cow episode, those both sound really, really important. And one last thing, Joseph, if our listeners want to find you apart from the YouTube channel, uh, how can they find you so that our listeners can become your viewers? Yeah. So my social media manager would always uh, remind me to to plug my social media and I'm not, I'm not the best at it, but I, I am on Twitter. I, I try to stay somewhat active on Twitter. So you could find me at, at, at JM Humeyer on Twitter. And that, that'd probably be the social media outlet that I'm most active in, but I'm getting better at using Instagram as well, because I feel like I want to, you know, educate younger audiences as well. And I know they're mostly on Instagram and TikTok. I refuse to get a TikTok account because I don't want to <laughs> give my information to the Chinese uh, intelligence services. But uh, I am on Instagram, same JM Humeyer. You could find me on Instagram as well. And, and as I think Raphael mentioned earlier, I've, I've gotten better at posting videos. And since we're doing a lot of video content lately, Instagram is actually better for that than Twitter is. So those are probably the two major platforms that you could find me on. Uh, but I do encourage everybody to subscribe to the Secure Free Society's YouTube page because that's where most of the original content is going to be coming, even more than our website. Because we're going to obviously put papers and stuff out on our website, but the videos are, are going to come out on the YouTube page. Okay, perfect. Yeah, you heard him. Border Wars episode one is already out. First episode literally just came out yesterday. Then the uh, the one that we were discussing at the beginning of the podcast, uh, Arauca, Colombia, and Venezuela's Rising Tension came out two months ago. Both are phenomenal watches, so watch both of them. You will not be disappointed. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you, Raphael. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to the story of Venezuela as much as we enjoyed sharing it. Make sure you subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts to listen to other episodes and follow us on all social media platforms for more engaging content. Don't forget to share the podcast with friends, family, or anyone abroad. Reach out to us with any suggestions for future episodes at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com or just to say hello. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, we'll see you in the next one. Thank you.